You're listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information about Vineyard Milwaukee Church, visit vineyardmilwaukee.com. Now here's this week's message. Good morning. Welcome, Vineyard Milwaukee. Welcome. For those of you who are with us, joining with us at home, we welcome you. We're really glad you're here. Whether you're in front of us or online, we're grateful. And we're glad for the babies and children in the room. Um, we are slowly opening up our children's ministry. We're starting with uh, kids four and under, and you'll have an opportunity to register for that online if you have a little one in that category. Um, and then we'll be eventually opening up for the um, elementary students too. But uh, regardless whether we're open or not, your children and babies are always welcome in this space. We are family, and we're delighted to have them. So, um, well, justice is a loud word right now, isn't it? The, the, the term justice has been really loud this past year, and uh, it's really been shouting at us this week, hasn't it? As we just found out this week, um, Derek Chauvin, um, everybody knows that name, uh, was convicted of all three counts of, of murder against George Floyd. And this came, this conviction came the same day um, that we found out the tragedy of Micaiah Bryant, a 16-year-old who was shot by a police officer in my hometown, Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from. And I don't know, those of you who are on social media, it didn't take long before this became a controversial topic. There was already arguing going on about the specifics of the case. And, um, you know, regardless of how uh, your take on the particulars of this situation, I think we can all collectively agree that this is a tragedy. And as I was looking at the news reports, I was kind of struck by something the mayor of Columbus said. He said, ultimately, this is all of our failure. He said, as a community, we, we let her down and we're all responsible. And as I was kind of processing that, and just, just, just so you don't misunderstand me, I'm not dismissing the need for police reform. I am not addressing the specifics of the actual shooting in this case. What I am simply saying, and I think that the mayor was addressing, is that there's systemic injustice, that there's layers of historic and collective injustices that led to an event like this even happening in the first place. And the question that I felt led to ask myself as I was reflecting on this is, what's my responsibility? What is our responsibility? What's the church's responsibility, the people that love and follow Jesus What is our responsibility as we look at all forms of injustice in our world? And so I think as I was processing this, I think before I can answer that question, I think we need to start with a really good working biblical definition of justice. How does the Bible talk about justice and what our response to justice should look like? And so I actually want to start with just a little video from the Bible Project. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, I just couldn't recommend more becoming familiar with it, especially if you're new to the Bible. These are just phenomenal videos and descriptions that are easy to follow that are really well done that help you understand, give you overviews of whole books of the Bible and how it works together as a narrative. So I just want to show you a brief video where they describe the biblical terms justice and how it's played out in the Bible. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. 
And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. 
And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Courageously making other people's problems my problems. See, I think there's several responses that I've kind of noticed uh, how the church has responded to social justice that we can kind of slip into, all of us can kind of slip into. And so I just want to quickly address three of them that I've kind of noticed. Um, I call them divorce, disconnect, and dabble. (laughs) So there's an unfortunate response I've seen uh, in the church in America where we want to divorce our sort of personal spirituality from our public spirituality. So in other words, as they were talking about, we kind of focus on this idea of personal righteousness or being good, like good moral right behavior. But we miss like the terms and what they really meant. So they talk about tzedakah, which means being just or or righteousness. Um, And then that is actually referring to right relationships where there's no hierarchy, there's no power play, there's no oppressor and therefore someone who's being oppressed, there's no uh, privilege, therefore underprivileged. And so all throughout the scriptures, they talked about these terms tzedakah and mishpat. They're brought together scores of times throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, As Tim Keller, the theologian that many of you may be familiar with, um, as he puts it, these two words roughly correspond to what some have called primary and rectifying justice. Rectifying justice is mishpat, means punishing wrongdoers and caring for victims of unjust treatment. Primary justice, or tzedakah, is behavior that if it was prevalent in the world would render rectifying justice unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationships with everyone else. Therefore, though tzedakah is primarily about being in a right relationship with God, the righteous life that results is profoundly social. So in other words, the quality of our faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And the quality of justice in the land 
will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups fared while we were alive. So God does not, um, our stand with God does not only rest on our private, personal spirituality, but how we stand with the marginalized. The prophet said that God stands with the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed, but Jesus said that God is in the poor and the vulnerable and oppressed, according to Matthew 25. And if, according to the whole Bible and, and the life and teachings of Jesus, there's no such thing as a personal righteousness that does not express itself socially. So again with Keller, he says, if you're trying to live a life in accordance with the Bible, the concept and call to justice are inescapable. We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only the writings of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and vulnerable. And so the question is, is our discipleship of Jesus edging us closer to the marginalized? The second thing I've noticed is disconnect. So I think the temptation that I noticed a lot, and that I have been guilty of myself throughout this past year, is the temptation to be on the right side of issues, to post the right kind of posts on social media, to... Uh, read the right kind of books, but without really stepping into real messes with real human beings in a way that costs us something, in a way that truly exposes and challenges our biases. A friend of mine who lives in Minneapolis wrote on her uh, Facebook page just the day before the the Derek Chauvin um, verdict was going to be announced Um, They were bringing in armored vehicles and kind of preparing for potential unrest. And she wrote, uh, views from Minneapolis today, shortly followed by seeing 10 armored vehicles on the freeway headed into the city. I'm continually disturbed, not surprised, but disturbed by how easily our systems can be so agile to respond to, quote, unrest, but how unmoving they are to respond to white supremacy, causing me to reflect, too, on how often I am unmoved, not wanting my love of neighbor to really cost me anything or disturb my privileged life. Now, again, I'm not making a statement opposed to posting things on social media. We've posted plenty of things on social media. I'm simply saying that you will not be changed when the bulk of your exposure and experience with broken systems and marginalized people groups comes from a book or computer screen. And additionally, though I believe there's real value, I mean, real value, in becoming more educated around social issues, I myself have been significantly impacted by books like White Awake, The Irresistible Revolution, Evicted, many excellent podcasts and movies on these subjects, and I highly recommend staying on a continual journey of educating yourself and listening to other voices around areas of systematic racism and generational poverty and historic and political practices that are designed to oppress communities of color and immigrants and the plight of the poor and those suffering with different kinds of mental health issues and disabilities and all of those things. But ultimately, you can know all the right things to think and say and post and never really have your heart changed by another human being. You know, my views on um, the working poor and single mothers were, didn't come from anything I'd read in a book. It came from the years I lived in Dorchester, Massachusetts, and I 
I worked at a before and after school program, and uh, almost all the kids I worked with came, were come from single homes with single moms, and I'd see these young women, some of them younger than me, up early in the morning, dropping their kids off before school, taking the long walk to the subway to take several trains into the city to work, come back, long walk back to pick their kids up at after school program, having to get there by six o'clock because I was supposed to charge them if they were late, then walk their kids home to get them fed and bathed, to crash into bed, just to do it all over again the next day without any support, never be able to get ahead enough to buy a car so they could actually drive themselves to work or drive their kids to school or to wherever they wanted to go, or to the grocery store. If there was a decent grocery store in the city, which there wasn't, uh, you'd have to drive outside the city. And if you don't have a car, try taking the subway and getting enough groceries to feed your family. You have to carry them all on the subway. And so what they had, convenience stores with honey buns and little hugs. And uh, I just saw these amazing, hardworking, resilient moms um, having to live this way. That was, these are the women I developed relationships with and saw this daily struggle of survival. And my thoughts on... Refugees and immigrants were formed by the kids in my youth group who, while praying for them, sobbed as they relived the trauma of living in refugee camps at 8, 9, and 10 years old while bombs were going off around them as they huddled with their family, not knowing if they were going to live through the night. I was so hoping I'd get through today's talk without crying, but I don't think I'm going to be able to. You know, it's one thing to read about a policy and a whole other thing when that policy has a name and is sitting at your kitchen table. Because in order for being just and righteousness to not just be a thing we do, but part of who we are and the way that we show up in the world, we need to be changed by relationships with other human beings who have a different life experience than us. And this brings me to my final thing, dabbling. It's easy to get caught up in some momentum or a single event that has energy around it, but those things don't lead to long-term transformation. We hosted an annual event at Vineyard Columbus that was awesome. It was called a Single Parents Fair, and uh, we had tons of volunteers came out, come out for it. And when huge amounts of people from the community came, and we would do free oil changes and we had people making balloon animals and face paints for the kids, and we'd give away school supplies, and it was awesome. But I knew some members of our church that this was their one contribution to the community and to our church was just the single parents. They, like, lived for this, and their, that was their only involvement communally with our church, and they would talk about it every year. You're like, yes, we're so excited for the single parents fair. And they'd be so elated afterwards. Like, it was such a feel-good event, right? And they came out, and they changed oil, and they, you know, ran around all the day, and they felt really good. And don't get me wrong, I love this event, and I love big events. I mean, those of you who've been around it enough, we, you know Dave and I enjoy the big event, right? Um, so I'm not busting on that. But there is a big difference be between showing up once a year for a big event uh, for single parents, and a whole other thing to stand with a single mom in an unexpected pregnancy for a long haul, to walk next to her, to go to appointments, to help gather resources, to develop a relationship, be a presence in that person's life. So how are we called to respond to injustice as our land? Well, as we talked about 
uh, the Bible speaks of mishpat or rectifying justice or sadaka, primary justice, and how these two are linked all through the scriptures. And so we are called to protect and care for the vulnerable and to advocate for victims of oppression and injustice, but we are also called to dismantle the systems and power dynamics that create that injustice in the first place. And this will always cost you something. Because in a society where one group is disadvantaged, another group rationally has to be advantaged. In order to elevate the disadvantaged, the group with the power and the privilege have to give that up. And so how do we begin to do this? How do we begin to walk this out? You may be saying, like, Rebecca, I hear you, but I can't single-handedly dismantle white supremacy or confront mass incarceration or unjust immigration policy or end poverty or homelessness or deal with a vast dysfunctional school system or food deserts or mistreatment of the elderly or disabled. Like, these are huge problems. How can I begin to step into it? I'm overwhelmed just thinking about it. What could I alone do? Well, first, I just want to remind you that you are not meant to do it alone, that everything we do as the church, as followers of Jesus, is meant to be done in the context of community. We're meant to do it together as family. But I do want to consider, as we're trying to process all of this, something that really struck me from the book of Acts um, as a a possible way to think about our response to justice. So let's look at Acts 4, verse 32. If you aren't familiar with the Bible, this is kind of the birth of the early church. And uh, it was like this beautiful community that had formed um, after the death and resurrection of Jesus and after he ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit. It didn't last long because it was human beings, but for a while it was really beautiful. And this community of followers of Jesus were just celebrating, eating each other's homes, sharing all their possessions. Like, no one thought their stuff was their own. It was just everybody's needs were taken care of. And so that's what's being discussed here. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them work in them all, that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, just so you're not worried that this sermon's going to go on and on, I'm going to unpack this primarily next week. As I was working on this, I thought, this needs to be a two-part talk because there's too much to cover in one Sunday. And I, next week is going to be a little more practical application, and I'm actually going to be interviewing a couple other people from our, our family here just to give you some um, practical like steps you can take. So I'm not going to go into huge detail this Sunday, but this really spoke to me this week. Um, as I was working on this, I just want to highlight a few things that really stood out to me. Um, those of you know, I'm a big fan of this Pray As You Go app, and it's like a little, if you're familiar with contemplative practices, it's like meeting with a spiritual director for like, you know, 10 minutes a day or something. It just kind of walks you through some scripture and asks you some questions and 
sometimes gives you an imaginative exercise. And so a couple weeks ago, this was the scripture that was being used. And they were describing the scene um, where Joseph, uh, verse 37, where he sold a field and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And they had us kind of put ourselves in that position as if we were Joseph. And so at first I thought, yeah, this is easy. Like, I'm loving the early church pictures. I'm like a hippie at heart. I love this idea of like communal living and everyone like sharing all their resources and being glad of heart and celebration and whatever. So I'm, I have this pile of money that I had just collected from the sale of my property that maybe it was passed down in my family. Maybe I'd watched my parents work this field. I don't know. And I'm walking up there all happy to give it away until I bend down to like, just give it all up. And suddenly, in my imaginative exercise, I'm realizing, like, I got a kid going to college this fall. Like, I really need this money. And I really want new carpet because my little pug puppy's been peeing on it. And I really need new carpet upstairs. And Dave and I are celebrating our 25th anniversary this summer. I'd be really great to, like, do something special. I'm thinking of all the the, the reasons that it's hard to give up this money. And I really realized as I was like putting it down that there was a little wrestling going on in my heart. And as I was processing what that wrestling was about, uh, I realized that there, what was really happening was there was a trust issue going on. And as you know, the process of laying something down can also come in the form of our time, our talents, other resources, our privilege, our power. And this laying it down is so important. Joseph, that they called Barnabas, could have decided to keep that money and and use it more as charity. Uh, He could have decided, like, I'll give some away as I see that people need it, or I'll kind of decide who to give it to or, or how it should be given. He could have kind of kept control of his money and the process, but by laying the money down, he gave up control. He laid down his rights and his power over it. And see, I think when we're in the privilege or power position, if we really want to see justice in the land, we can't just try to help the disadvantaged without laying down our advantage. If there are people groups who are being oppressed, there are people contributing to the oppression. And if we want to contribute to bringing justice in the land, we need to start by opening up our hands and to give away whatever it is that God asks us to. We can't serve the victimized with one hand while we benefit from the system that victimized them to begin with. And so what I discovered in my own heart as I was laying this down, in this scene it was money, but whatever it was that God might be asking you to lay down, that the the real wrestling of my heart in that moment, for me it was money, was do I trust God? Do I trust that if I'm generous enough to the point that it costs me something, that I can feel the sacrifice in my body? Do I trust that God will give me everything I need, that he will take care of me and my family's needs in all ways, materially, physically, spiritually, emotionally, all that we need to live abundantly? And when I trust his version of abundance, of the abundant life, that he actually knows what me and my children and you and your children, if you have them, most deeply desire, what will bring you actually the greatest fullness 
the greatest joy, the greatest peace, that he knows better how to lead you to life than you do, and that he is more than capable of leading you to the abundant life as you give yours away. It's this upside-down kingdom. God pours it in as we're pouring it out. In Matthew 16, 25, it says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. As we lay down our time, our treasures, our talents, is an act of surrender. It's an act of releasing control. It's an act of trust. Do we trust the life Jesus offers us is the abundant life? Because the opposite of this looks like fear and control and striving. It looks like Joseph hesitating as he was bending down and wondering, maybe I know better actually what will give me full life. Maybe I know better and I'll choose to remain in control of my own destiny. See, we're afraid of not being in control, of not having enough of what we want. But the truth is that hoarding and controlling actually increases our fear. And this fear and control is what leads to the scarcity mentality that leads to greed and grasping for power that led to all these forms of injustices in the first place. So Joseph had a choice. He could keep a tight grip on his resource to trust in his money, to provide security and abundance, or let go of it and trust that it never really belonged to him in the first place. The apostles called him Barnabas, which they said means son of encouragement. Isn't that cool? I mean, you can imagine, this must have been a pretty joyful, hopeful guy. Listen, we're all created in the image of God, and God is the most generous being in the universe. So we live most freely and lightly when we trust him with all that we have and all that we are, knowing everything comes from him and everything belongs to him. And so when we develop habits and practices of generosity, giving away our time, our treasure, our talents, our privilege, our power, to those on the margins in a way that we feel it, in a way that actually changes our lifestyle, then our hearts become more aligned with God's, and we become home to our true selves, experiencing true abundance. So when you speak for those who don't have a voice, when you advocate for the powerless, when you elevate the disadvantaged, when you feed the hungry, when you visit the elderly or visit somebody in prison, when you take in a foster child, when you care for the disabled, when you tutor a kid or pray for someone's healing on the street, you are literally, not metaphorically, you are literally doing it to Jesus. Jesus said, when you do this for one of the least of me, the least of my brothers and sisters, you do it for me. You know Jesus has favorites? He does. If you want to get close to Jesus, you're going to have to step away from the cool kids' table. You're going to have to go hang out with those on the margins because that is where Jesus is hanging out. The band can head on back up. We're going to move into our final worship song. And um, I wasn't sure how, uh, what the invitation to prayer was today. Just give me a minute. I'm going to ask God.
I feel like um, the word that just keeps coming to me is sort of a stretching. It's sort of like this, like, like uh, my experience this week was just sort of like God was stretching me in different ways. And um, I feel like even as I talked, there was maybe something inside of you that was like poked at or stretched or moved a little bit, and I'm not sure what that is. But as I said, next week we're going to unpack this a little more practically, but I think maybe God just wants to attend to your hearts today. Kind of like what was being sort of poked at a little bit or stretched or moved. Um, And kind of this sense of like, when you think about laying something down, like what is that that God might be inviting you to lay down? And so I think as we start the worship, maybe just sit for a minute with that question and ask God, what might you be inviting me to lay down right now? What what are you highlighting or putting your finger on? It may be a real specific thing like money. It may be your time or talent. Maybe supernatural power. He's asking you to step out in a little bit more and So he's asking you to lay down your fear around that. Um, Maybe something to do with a privilege or comfort that you kind of want to maintain in your life. I'm not sure. So ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. And then if you'd like to receive prayer around that or anything else, if you have just something going on in your life that you need prayer for, um, an area that needs healing or addressing, a relationship issue. Uh, we just invite you to receive prayer today. There'll be a few of us kind of um, in the back corner over here that would be happy to pray for you. So just slip on back at any point during the worship song to receive prayer. <laughs> 